a recent survey has indicated that 57% of Gen Z response said they'd become an influencer if given the chance. And 30% said they'd even pay for the opportunity to be an influencer. I feel like they don't know what the definition of influencer means. Yeah. They're paying to be one. They believe that being a social media influencer can be lucrative. They also love the fact that influencers get free stuff like products, foods, trips, event access, etc. It's tough to pay your rent on that, but get a free coffee maker. Here's the other things, right? Two teens recently told NPR that they thought influencing would be aligning to doing exactly what they like to do and for fun, like playing video games, for example, while collecting paychecks. I've worked with people that did that during their day job. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 350. That's Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith. Hey there, Reed. I am about ready to just quit doing podcasting and just become an influencer. I'm telling you. <laughs> I thought we tried that about 10 years ago. <laughs> I just want the free stuff that you get from being an influencer. But apparently doing podcasting, it's a lot, whole lot of free stuff. I've got a lot of branded socks from over the years, but no, thanks everybody for, uh, for joining us for another episode. 350. That seems, I don't know, seems like some sort of a quasi milestone of sorts, I guess. Sure does. Yeah. We've done 35 episodes 10 times. So. <laughs> 10, 10 sets of 35. So anyway, thanks everybody for joining. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Over there, you can sign up for the TPS report, name, email address, get you an email on Monday mornings, five articles to start your week. Hopefully that's a little value add for listening to the show. Yeah, you check out other episodes, topics, all that kind of fun stuff while you're there. But let's do this. Um, we'll pause here, let you sign up for the TPS report. We'll be back with today's show in just one second. Again, touchpoint.health. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is, and Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews, and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand, they demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you.
All right, Chris, today we're going to talk a little bit about the topic of innovation, but more specifically a book and some thoughts from a book that's been around for quite some time. There's a book out there, maybe listening, maybe have even read it, The Innovator's Dilemma. A great book that came out in 1997 by Clayton Christensen. Best-selling author. He's obviously very well known in the space around innovation, Harvard Business School. I mean, he's written a bunch of different books, management consultant, you know, that kind of thing. He even coined the actual term disruption. In this book, it was a definition of disruption. And we're actually going to, before we get into actually some of the arguments that he has about uh, innovation and how it's sometimes a dilemma, I think it's good for us to level set on his actual definition of what disruption could be because it's been used or modified over time. It has. And I think in the reason we're talking about this is because we have found ourselves having to be innovative, whether or not you have the topic of innovation within your organization or have some sort of oversight of that functional area is not really the point. The point is, is like, you know, it's evolving. We've talked a lot about AI, about generative AI as of late. And, you know, really thinking about our roles, what we're called, how we function, things like that, that innovation in and of itself is becoming a necessity. It is. And this is kind of like a tag on to our very last episode where we were talking about the different strategies at work, digital strategies at work in health systems too. So not only is it like we're becoming more involved with innovation, it's also becoming one of those cornerstone strategies that we do in our day-to-day jobs. Well, you want to hit us with the uh, definition? Let's quote Clayton out of his book directly. By the way, for those of you who don't have the book, definitely I recommend you get it. It's a really great read, even if you're not intimately involved in innovation. But he indicates in his book that most new technologies foster improved product performance. Most new technologies. Um, I guess we'll subtext it a little bit. I've seen some products that actually have not gotten better. But the whole point here is he defines these as sustaining technologies. Sustaining technologies can be discontinuous or radical in character, while others are of an incremental nature. And he also underscores that what all sustaining technologies have in common is that they improve the performance of established products along the dimensions of performance that mainstream customers and major markets have valued. And these advances in any given industry are sustaining in character. An important finding revealed in the book is that rarely have even the most radically difficult sustaining technologies precipitated the failure of leading firms. Okay, so that's sustaining disruption. But then there's a whole other term that he talks about. Yeah, then he gets into this idea of disruptive technologies. And it's interesting because when you first read this, you're like, wait a minute, what now? But it's like technologies that result in a worse product performance, at least in the near term. So I mean, like, well, well, hang on a second. But a lot of times he says that disruptive technologies are, you know, they're typically cheaper, smaller, simpler, frequencies different, more convenient to use, that kind of thing. And he goes into some examples, you know, the personal desktop computer, discount retail centers, you know, things like that. Even small off-road motorcycles were disruptive technologies, he says, relative to the powerful on-road, larger traditional motorcycles that you think of. So he goes on to talk about health maintenance organizations being disruptive to conventional health insurers. So in the near term, internet appliances, as he calls them, may become disruptive technologies to suppliers of personal computer, hardware, software, et cetera. 
Yeah, it's good to remember this was written in 1997, right? He, this is well before everything that we're seeing today. And I think that as we talk about disruptive technology versus sustaining the improvement, that we probably in the back of our minds are probably thinking of some of those hyped up technologies that we're talking about today, like AI and other things too. So it's important to understand these two differences though, between radical sustained innovation and disruptive innovation. We're often incorrectly calling one for the other. What he gets into though, is that through this disruptive technology concept, that there are several arguments about how they can actually disrupt established industries. And I think this is a pivotal time for us to talk about this because our industry is facing one of these challenges that could potentially, if we go the wrong path, it could really cause a lot of long-term harm for us. So why don't we go through some of these key arguments? There's actually 10 of them that are presented in the book, and we could talk about them each. Well, the first thing is is what, you're, what we were just talking about, but is the disruptive versus sustaining concepts. Again, incremental improvements versus a disruptive innovation that has, you know, a new way of, of thinking or tackling a problem, you know, et cetera. So when you're looking at healthcare, this is where we talk about, like, is this really just a better way to do something? Is this like process improvement or is this really fundamentally different, right? I, th- I think that's the way I've heard it and, and even talked about it maybe inside our own organization. Both are good, but one of them is not necessarily innovation in my mind. It's just process improvement. Again, still great. I can think of a number of different things here. If you think about like virtual nursing, well, that's a different way, you know, or the telehealth virtual care kind of piece. That's a, that's a completely different way of doing something. So that's innovative in, in that way. You know, that's kind of where my head went first with, with, some, with some of the stuff that we're working on. But it's based on some disruptive technologies, like telemedicine is disruptive. I think Clayton would agree that telemedicine was, or even AI as being a disruptive technology. These are radically new things that are coming in, and not only are they being used to help with sustainable improvement, but they're also being used to disrupt. And so that's an interesting perspective on that. Uh, Let me uh, tackle the second one here. Shorthand, incumbent firms tend to focus on profitable customers. When we're health systems, we tend to focus on serving the most profitable customers and markets, and we often neglect less profitable or emerging segments. And this often can lead to an opening for disruptive technologies to look for those overlooked markets, so to speak. Think about this advent of all of these for-profit telemedicine-like programs like Hers and Hims or Amazon Clinic, which is what it's doing. It's really this sort of this commercial approach to maybe prescribe certain over-the-counter medications or things that are close to being over-the-counter, right? It's not that you're being diagnosed with cancer, you're being diagnosed with hair loss, right? So it's something a little bit less of an impact on your health. That's an open market. Another place to think about it is sort of these fast care, urgent care clinics. Now, I would say that that's more of an evolution of uh, sustaining innovation. There are some approaches around those fast care settings that are a little bit disruptive. Like, do you need to even need to see a doctor? Do you even need to have them affiliated with a health system? There? Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, we typically focus on the folks that are commercially insured and need surgery. <laughs> right. And and that's where that's why you've seen a lot of these other things pop up that are more consumer centric. And that's where the convenience piece comes in and some of those types of things, too. So 
Next one that gets called out is the va- they call the value network. They talk in the here that you know companies typically operate within a value network of suppliers, distributors, and customers, and that disruptive technologies can alter the dynamics of this network, often you know rendering existing relationships less relevant or even creating new relationships. If you look at that as it relates to the world in which we participate in, you've got payers, you've got providers, you've got, you know, if you kind of stand outside of that ecosystem and looking at pharmaceutical or med device and, you know, those types of the pieces that play in as well. Disruptive technologies, uh, you know, value-based care is an interesting one, but even looking at like social determinants of health, shifting sites and care, if all of a sudden now we're taking care of patients in their home, what does that do for some of the providers that are like brick and mortar centric? Or if you've got the ability to participate in some of the virtual telehealth type monitoring and what does that do to hospice or home care or even EMS relations? You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, we're starting to see that traditional framework reorganized to some degree. Yeah, I suspect that if Clayton Christensen would revisit this book, he would probably dedicate a whole section on value-based care because that's one of the most disruptive models in the healthcare industry today. And it because it, it ties in a lot of the things that you were just kind of outlining, all of these disruptive technologies, but you know, even focusing in on like care coordination, risk and accountability sharing, preventable hospitalizations, pharmaceutical and medical device innovations, it's just it's pretty substantial here. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front-row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Another disruption uh, is the technology trajectory. Oh, our favorite one, Reed. We like to talk about technology. Disruptive technology often starts with inferior performance compared to existing solutions. However, they improve over time and eventually reach a point where they can surpass the performance of established technologies, making them attractive to mainstream customers. This is really where AI plays a huge role. AI-assisted diagnostics, therapeutics, anywhere that we're applying AI, they often begin in a slower, lower acuity, but they rapidly are improving. They're improving so fast that we joked about it, but we're talking about it in almost every episode now. This technology is going to be so radically transformative. It's going to change the way, typically the way we've evolved using therapeutic tools and diagnostic tools and even call centers and other things like that. It's going to have such a disruptive change over time. I think I can think of a lot of scenarios here. So it's like, it's almost like, are you willing to stick with it long enough to realize the, the true value? Next dilemma, customers overshooting needs, as they call it. So established customers often have more advanced needs than what disruptive technologies can initially offer. So it's like, 
yeah, this is neat, but it doesn't quite give me everything that I'm looking for. And so it's like, what does that do for innovation, for uh, disruptors? Potentially, you end up in kind of a less demanding market segment, as they call it here. So like like Amazon or Village MD or some of those that are, you know, it's like a primary care play. But like, what if you need more than that? How could that transform how we're delivering care, right? We've talked a lot about with these sort of disruptors coming into the marketplace that we need to partner with them somehow, right? We need to partner with CVS and the, the pharmaceuticals. We need to partner with these retail clinics because there has to be some kind of level of continuity of care. Because if they show up in a less, you know, less acute sense in a retail clinic that's not associated with an established organization, that becomes now a big, big challenge to our industry. Let's get into the one that he calls the innovator's dilemma, where he indicates that established organizations often face a dilemma when dealing with disruptive technologies. Investing heavily in these technologies like private equity and VCs are doing right now with like a a bunch of different digital health companies, they can sometimes undermine their existing business models and relationships. But if they ignore them, they feel they can be disrupted themselves. So I think a lot of health systems are sitting now on the precipice of like the innovator's dilemma. Should we go into investing in this newer technology that's coming into play? Should we try to internalize innovation in our organization? And that often becomes challenging because we're not set up as organizations to really radically change that quickly. I mean, if anything you could say about our industry, it's pretty conservative in nature. Yeah, nobody wants to be the first one charging up the hill, it doesn't seem. Because it's like, what's the upside? You know, I mean, as long as... You can still operate at certain margins and things like that. Then what's the motivating factor? People like the idea of innovation, maybe don't have the appetite for it, or even just the systems in place to really take what it means and drive it forward or really see the value from it. Yeah. And that, I think that's the important piece right there is the value, right? Finding the value of innovation. Next one on the the list, resource allocation. So they say that companies tend to allocate resources based on their current customer demands and margins. This makes it challenging, as you might imagine, to invest in disruptive technologies that have a lower initial ROI. Again, I can think of several scenarios where it's like, (laughs) hey, this is really interesting. I can see where this could go. But yet today, no. It doesn't make sense. You can't bill for it, maybe, or there's not a clear ROI. You just have a hypothesis on what this might do to impact burnout or labor or, or something, right? Like, it's like, I don't know until we're until we do it. I can't tell you exactly. It's an interesting struggle between folks in innovation and folks in operations in a lot of cases. And nobody's wrong, necessarily. I mean, it's not like, you know, the operators or the finance folks are incorrect, but it's like, how do you, how do you move some of these ideas forward? Well, and the other thing too, right? In this very day and age where we're very resource strapped, we have very slim margins. It's very easy for our organizations to kind of say, look, that's a good idea, but we're not ready to do that right now because we need to focus on the core and the infrastructure of what we need to do. We need to continue to stand up our EMR platforms or whatever, right? We have a tendency to align towards those things that are serving our majority of customers. Again, it's back to value. It's back to value. How do you define the value in all of this? Another challenge, 
not surprisingly, is entering into the market. Market entry strategies. When you have a disruptive innovation, often these things enter the market in a kind of a low-key way, initially targeting niche markets or non-consumption markets. And I, I mean, another, we could put AI in all of this, but AI is a great example of this, right? AI and generative AI specifically has been being used for years in smaller ways. But what suddenly happened is it sort of jumped that Gartner hype cycle and now it's all over the place. So disruptive healthcare innovations, like home monitoring is another example, right? They often start by, you, you, you start focusing on those maybe very chronic health conditions. So that the people dealing with cancer recovery or diabetics or what have you, providing them remote patient care. And then you're suddenly going, wait, that works. And now we're going to expand it and scale it. And now we're talking about hospital at home. When you, your market entry strategy is very complicated because you enter the market in a very non-disruptive way and suddenly now you have to change everything. And is everybody ready for that? Leads a little bit to the, the next one on the list, which is the incumbent's reaction to disruption. I think we're seeing a lot of it right now in our space. Established companies, they say, often react too late to disruptive threats. They may attempt to defend their own markets and trying to improve their current products or efforts. I think you're seeing that currently with other telehealth entrants. I mean, you mentioned some of the more retail kind of companies. Was it Hims and hers or whatever and some of those types of folks? But like the Walgreens or the CVS or the clinics in the grocery store or the Village MD or the Amazons, whatever it is, Walmart, et cetera. How are we reacting to that? Well, I mean, you're seeing some folks start to look at ambulatory strategies and, and make ideas and assumptions and decisions and you know those types of things. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I don't think the answer is to build a newer hospital. I mean, you could build you could build smarter hospitals, that's for sure. But building newer hospitals, I think, at the end of the day, you're right. How far can you advance a hospital setting, with the exception of you know introducing all the cool smart technologies? Which leads to the tenth argument, tenth um, uh, dilemma of innovators that Clayton outlines in his book. I speak about him like I know him. I don't. I read his books. Yeah. So, but that Mr. Christensen <laughs> outlined in his book, sustaining innovations trap. Focusing solely on sustaining innovations can be a trap as well. They can achieve short-term success and profitability. And there's a lot of digital health companies right now that are finding their heyday, right? They're trying to meet the moment, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But they can also miss the long-term threat posed by disruptive technologies. It's kind of this interesting balancing act as healthcare organizations. You have to focus on incremental improvements, but you also have to look at this transformative, like personalized medicine or gene therapy or what have you. You got to do both at the same time. And that's really, really hard for us to do, particularly in today's day and age where we're not equipped to A, pivot quickly, B, um, we're still coming out of the pandemic, right? We're still reacting to that. We have low margins. We have a disruptive workforce. Now we're suddenly asking everybody to kind of keep your eye on two different things. That's very, very hard to do. Again, you're going to get a lot of the, like, this isn't what I signed up to do. You know, I mean, this is not, what is this? This is, <laughs> this is a different industry, you know, all of a sudden. But, I mean, I do think that's where, you know, we find ourselves and what, what uh, we really have to, to think about. And I think putting the consumer at the center of it, which you and I have talked a lot about, fundamentally forces innovation. 
I think Clayton Christensen points it, uh, quotes it in his book really well. And again, remember, this is written in 1997, so he's pretty innovative himself, right? But he says that companies are faced with the question of, should we make better products to make better profits or make worse profits for people that are not our customers that eat into our own margins, but ultimately allow us to innovate? That's the paradox that we're facing. Bit of a challenge. But it's fun, right? I mean, this is this is why we do this. And and really, quite honestly, with a lot of this comes opportunity for the right people that have an interest and an aptitude for it. I think that's where, you know, we'll find ourselves. So And with that, Reed, I think this is a good time for us to pivot to an interview I had with Kamal Jethwani from Decimal.Health. He has a great experience in innovation in healthcare, but he also now works with organizations to help them understand and achieve innovation, setting up innovation within the organizations at health systems. And he has a really great approach towards how he views this and how he helps organizations through that. So we'll take a brief pause and then we'll listen to that interview and then we'll be back to close out the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I am really excited about today's conversation. A person that I've known for a little bit of time, but I've come to really appreciate his insights and perspective on the particular topic at hand today. And that is Kamal Jethwani from Decimal Health. Kamal, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Very excited to be here with you. And and thank you so much for inviting me. I am excited today to have, to have this conversation. I know you and I have already had a few conversations outside of the microphone, so this will be really a great one to bring to our audience today. But before we jump into today's topic, I would love for you to share a little bit about your background and what led you to working now at Decimal.Health. So my background is as a primary care physician, and I spent a number of years, uh, over a decade really, at Mass General Brigham leading digital innovation, what, what we called at that time Connected Health. What I did there was really think about what we need to be able to do and build for our users, our providers, our patients, to be able to deliver better quality care, to be able to improve their experience, to be able to really change how we deliver care in a a positive way for them. And in my time there, we built uh, several products. We took to market several products. And we were sort of the front door for any outside innovation to come into the organization and help them sort of navigate and get implemented within the organization. So we, we did both, you know, sort of respond to internal priorities, but we also had a lot of response to sort of external parties wanting to work internally with our innovators, but also our, our uh, frontline clinical staff. That experience taught me a lot about, you know, some of the benefits of, of having internal innovation in, a, in an organization, but also some of the drawbacks of, of having to innovate within provider systems. I saw some of the challenges internally, but then I also saw a lot of, a lot of opportunity outside. And to me, one of the biggest gaps was the gaps in insights that some innovators had outside, especially in startup companies, et cetera, where they didn't really fully grasp the complexity of, of what it takes to, de- to deliver care to our patients within our four walls. And that lack of understanding basically led to tools that were developed that were really interesting and, and well thought through from a user standpoint when the user was a patient, but not really fully fleshed out when you thought about providers and workflows and implementation and IT staff and whatnot. And to me, that was an interesting challenge because I thought that all this really interesting innovation 
should not go to waste, right? I want I want it all to see the light of day, and I want it all to see the light of day within provider systems because a technology enabled provider will be much stronger in the future. So that's the vision with which I launched uh, Decimal Health uh, right before the pandemic, and the idea there was. <laughs> to um, help companies understand the perspectives of those that are delivering care on a day-to-day basis, help them understand how to commercialize and uh, scale their products, and then being able to match make them with opportunities within healthcare systems that that make sense to them and, and for the products that they're building out. It's been an interesting journey. We're, we're cl- closing in on four years in a few months, and we work with Obviously, startups and innovation economy, we work with providers a lot. I help a lot of different provider systems figure out their innovation agendas and how to implement innovation and make it a real part of their DNA. And then also with pharma companies in helping them figure out sort of how to engage with innovative solutions and then how do you commercialize in a way that makes sense for their own product portfolios and and, and their own um, strategies. It's interesting that you even alluded to this at the beginning that initially when you started this, it was called Connected Health. And suddenly now there's this term called digital innovation. I've heard that term bandied about a lot within health systems and digital health companies, etc. But I think that the, the concept of digital innovation is defined differently by who you speak to. Now, when you look at it from your vantage point, what are some of the major aspects of what digital innovation would be? So we can kind of set the table around this topic today. It's a really good um, question, actually. I, I don't know if anyone has a clear answer. And, and the reason for that is because I think, as it rightly should, innovation, when successful, starts to bleed into other areas that enable these innovations to take place, right? So if you have a really successful, innovative solution, in, in some time, it'll hit IT and it'll hit informatics and, you know, those departments will take lead and they will, you know, make it successful if, if the solution works. You know, you will start to, you know, hit into frontline workers, into clinical departments, etc. The more success they can claim on that, the more real and, you know, scaled up your innovation has become. So in a way, to me, you know, having seen this industry now for over 18 years, you know, back in the day, I was the lone wolf that, you know, basically wanted someone to, you know, kind of accept me in a way, um, where today people are fighting over who claims it. And, and to me, I almost chalked out of a pop to success, right? That's the success of the industry that more departments think that this belongs to them. So with that out of the way, so I don't think it's a bad <laughs> thing. With that out of the way, I think the way I would think about innovation is, When you want to do something that is just improving incrementally your day-to-day activities, if you basically are doing something already and you just find find a new way to do it, that may be something, you know, that may be defined, let's say, as core innovation might be something that kind of sits, you know, within some of your other core departments. When I think about digital innovation, especially in the context of provider organizations, I think of implementing things that haven't been done before that by definition aren't scalable yet that are probably in either proof of concept stage or pilot stage where we still don't have the proof in the pudding, but we think that it's a really important problem to solve and it is a really important uh, solution that we can bring in, but but we don't have enough confidence in it yet to be able to mess up our other systems that are at scale that are keeping the lights on for the organization. So anything that falls into that category to me would be fair game to be called digital innovation or innovation within a health system context. Now, obviously, pharma defines it differently, and I'm sure startups want to define differently so we can get at that, but this is purely the, the health system perspective. 
And, and that makes a lot of sense. And I do know that innovation or digital innovation does coincide with digital transformation efforts, digital experience efforts, digital care efforts. The concept of digital in and of itself, right, is, is such in health systems that, you know, it becomes very significant and for also for pharma and digital health companies. It's fair to say, given your pulse on the market, that you're probably identifying some key trends and developments that are happening at this moment in time. Uh, I think that the pandemic has really escalated a lot of innovation uh, initiatives, or at least the desire to embrace innovation. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing uh, from the market, uh, both local and international, as some trends that we're we're finding in the space? If I I look at it highest level, there's maybe like three or four key categories of concern that most organizations are dealing with right now. The first one is a big category, and that's the labor shortage or the labor market issues, right? Now, within this are a number of smaller issues and and different parts of the country, I think, are dealing with different ones, right? So for some, it's nursing shortage. For some, it's, you know, physician shortage. For some, it is just efficiency of time issues, you know, for some, it is their frontline workers not working to the top of license because they don't actually have a lot of support staff. There's a lot of different issues embedded within that. But that's one big area of innovation, as I see it, where the organization that I'm at least talking to are pretty open and willing to putting money into it and, and helping figure out a way to solve that problem, right? So that, I think, from a problem perspective, that's a pretty big problem. The second one is just helping use your EMR better. Um, you know, we, 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 we spend most of our time on it and, you know, we love to hate it. And yet it is sort of the lifeblood of everything that goes on within a health system. So helping sort of a make it, make us more productive on it, but also be, you know, just improving the experience of using it. I think it's a big area that again, people are focused on may or may not be a ton of money in there, but I think there's a lot of need and unmet need in there. The third area of sort of opportunity anyway that I see right now is the area of sort of helping make clinical care delivery more efficient. So not just administrative and onboarding and other things, but what we're obviously dealing with in this country is a demographic problem, right? That people are living longer, thankfully a tiny bit healthier, but but definitely longer, which 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 means more chronic disease. You know, our physicians, we're not training as many physicians as we need. So helping create clinical models of care that don't rely on as much actual clinical staff to deliver it or clinical settings, physical clinical settings to deliver it are really all the rage right now. We're seeing a lot of uptake on hospital at home programs, care at home programs. We're seeing a lot of uptake on virtual programs like virtual urgent care, et cetera, virtual, you know, and and a number of programs that help, you know, move patients safely and effectively to the home from a clinical inpatient or an outpatient setting, because all of that sort of contributes to us being able to use our resources, both space and and personnel, more effectively. So that's from a problem area standpoint. From a solution area standpoint, again, <laughs> generative AI is all the rage. Um, right. Not a day goes by where I don't have that conversation, whether I like it or not. <laughs> digital tools and the sort of the range of digital tools is another sort of big open thing that that we talk about a lot right so tools ranging from using generative ai um, all the way to do other sorts of tools that are creating impact in interesting ways that's again all the trend or oh, we see a lot of tools that are not therapeutic in nature there's new diagnostics available that are more patient friendly the whole move towards consumerism and enabling our 
provider systems to provide care in a consumer-friendly fashion. Those are all gaining a lot of steam as well. Yeah, and it's it's in the United States, we have a very interesting approach to the way we do healthcare. And in response, we have this unique approach to addressing this concept of healthcare consumerism. You work with a lot of international companies, too, that are trying to gain traction into the marketplace. At a high level, what are some of the notable differences of how we in the United States are treating uh, innovation as opposed to those outside markets? I think... The business model of healthcare in the United States and the way money flows and the way we incentivize people within our organizations to either do something or not do something is very different from the rest of the world. Addressing the U.S. market and trying to come to the U.S. market is a completely different challenge. So just because you were, for example, successful and had a really great value proposition in the UK or France or wherever else, um, you know, has no implications on how you would be received in the US. And that's really because, you know, we're very clear on how we incentivize and disincentivize our people um, to act. When I think about, you know, organizations in the US, when we think about whether you're helping them gain revenue, whether you there is a billing code available for something, whether it fits into the workflow in a way that doesn't sort of sacrifice my other opportunities to be able to sort of add RVUs to, to my day. Versus outside of the US, you know, you think about is it does it have clinical outcomes? Is it good for the patient? Right. <laughs> and and not to say that we don't think about that in the US. We absolutely do, and that's really, really important. But those are not enough unless you really think through the workflows and you think through the incentives and the incentive structures that we've built into our system. That's the sort of the grounding for why it's so different. And I, I definitely see a lot of US com- uh, non-US companies come in and, and get pretty confused by it and they're like, well, but isn't it enough that this is, you know, great for the patient? And actually, I think that people almost think that it's it's not a good thing, but I almost happen to think that it's a good thing, right? Because I think that you want to make sure that you're thinking about your patients, obviously, because that's the most important stakeholder in here, but your provider, your your physician, your nurse, your clinician, they're as important stakeholders in this chain for this to be successful as your patients are, because if they're not convinced about something or if they're not bought in, then they're not going to sort of pass it on, right? So instead of becoming your champions, they become your gatekeepers. And I feel like the US model really forces you to address that versus I feel like in in other countries, I've seen that that's not necessarily something you want to address. And you end up with acceptance or what I call engage or adoption, but not a lot of engagement, right? So volumes of usage are not that high, unless you've been able to hit that and they don't force you to do it. In the U.S., they almost force you to do it. It's almost like that adage, right? If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere kind of model mm-hmm. because what you're doing is you're addressing it in, in a two-pronged approach because from, from, from my perspective, right, innovation is only successful if it innovates not only the care delivery for the patient, but also for that provider. And that and we, we, were, we have a very unique uh, nexus of challenges around that at this point in time. I think it's fair to say, right? I, I won't go so far as to say our system's broken, but we're pretty close to needing some radical over overhauls here in, our, in the United States. I think that's why many healthcare organizations are starting to seriously bring forward uh, these con- uh, these strategies around digital innovation and really wanting to advance innovation within healthcare organizations. But they face some significant challenges, don't they? They absolutely do. <laughs> <laughs> We would we wouldn't have this much job, you know. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
but 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 yeah, well, share a little bit about that. Like, what 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 makes our you know we've talked about on our show about you know we are very conservative, very much over indexed on safety first, and you know leveraging things that have been tried and true, evidence based approaches. But what are some of those things that you're seeing that are are the challenges within health systems here in the United States about a, adopting digital innovation? Quite honestly, if you think about it, and this is a little bit more fundamental, right? Like if you think about a pharma company or if you think about, you know, a technology company, a portion of their income is dedicated towards R&D, right? That R&D function keeps them competitive. It keeps them thinking about, you know, four to five years ahead. It keeps them nimble. It keeps them sort of watchful of the market. And that R&D function sort of comes up with new products and programs and ideas, either for internal improvement or for being able to sell new things to customers. Tell me which health system takes a big portion or any portion of their annual income and dedicates it to a dedicated R&D function that is thinking about the future competitiveness of their organization. And that's the core issue is that we don't. And, and you know, when I say this in front of a, a health system leader, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, you, we get a billion dollars in research funding. And that's not the same thing because that is research that is being generated at the ground level by researchers with research ideas. And they go to NIH and get funding for that idea. That is not helping the organization in a strategic manner to be able to future proof themselves. So. When you have an organization that is not used to investing in R&D, now you bring them these solutions and you bring them these, you know, these ways to solve these problems. The only way that, that we have been used to solving these problems in the past is throwing more people at the problem. And guess what? We've run out of people. Now, to solve this problem in a different way, it takes investments. It takes investment of resources, if, of hiring people, of, of allocating you know, technology resources and dollars towards that. And it takes resources to implement some of these new things because it, it is about fundamentally transforming how you practice in many cases, right? So your investment doesn't stop at creating a tool. It goes all the way down into implementing the tool and then proving it's successful and then scaling it, et cetera. This is not a muscle that we have built as a health system industry historically. So this is what's new. Fundamentally, we don't know how to engage with this. We don't know how to allocate budgets towards it. I see a lot of health systems trying to do very ambitious things. And then they tell me how much budget they have allocated towards it. And it's like, uh, you're maybe going to get to 10% of what you want to do. Right. And that do not, not really that well. And so if you're not going to invest in some of these things that are actually very important decisions, because they will affect probably eight to 10,000 employees within your organization, and then you you deploy it, and then you do it, you know, half-heartedly because you don't have budget for it, and then it doesn't succeed, and then it's like, well, you know, Gen AI doesn't work. Well, it does. <laughs> You've done well. This kind of speaks to the fact of there's a lot of debate around where does true innovation in our space, where's it coming from? They're outside entrants and disruptors. We hear about them all the time. I follow these people on LinkedIn that just salivate every time Amazon does something or Microsoft or mm-hmm. CBS or Walmart or what have you. Yet I'm kind of on the fence about like outsiders coming in and innovating our health system because we on the inside have a unique vantage point. So what's your perspective on that, on inside versus outside innovation? So my perspective is that really good process improvement, really good quality improvement stuff comes from the inside. I've seen more successful instances of that. I think really good disruptive innovation comes from the outside. 
And and there's a couple of reasons for that, right? One, I don't know if, you know, and anyone who's worked at any of these large organizations like Amazon, et cetera, will tell you it takes money and it takes a certain mindset for you to encourage and, and motivate your employees to think about things a little bit differently and disruptively, right? And just by the nature of our systems and our business models, we don't have that. I mean, you know what margin levels a lot of hospitals are running at. And, you know, you can't throw hundreds of millions of dollars on, on disruptive innovation or even creating the culture where, you're, where your staff is going to think like that. However, we do have extremely intelligent and talented people who will go through inefficient processes on a day-to-day basis and realize that they're inefficient and then want to change them. And the ways in which they can change them and the ways in which they can address those issues is far better than anyone on the outside can because you, they haven't lived it, right? The lived experience is missing. So it's really, and it's not impossible, but it's a little bit challenging to find really, truly disruptive innovation coming inside out. But there is, a, there is a lot of very good investable and solid scalable ideas that do exist within health systems, but I would call them a little bit more incremental. And some of them might be implementable right away, and some of, the, some of them might make billion-dollar businesses. So there's no discounting it, but they're just not you know, what you would consider disruptive. And that's probably why we're seeing this like partnership now between health systems and these technology companies and digital health companies. But the, even those partnerships are a little bit challenging unless we know how to orchestrate those relationships the right ways. That's right. That's absolutely right. And I think that the partnerships will help. Um, I think that you know, as long as there's alignment on why the two partners are getting into it and you know what makes sense from a stakeholder advantage standpoint as well right uh, we want to serve our patients we want to serve our providers i think that's a re- that's the reason why a lot of these industry partners want to get into it as well but a lot of these partnerships start in a pretty imbalanced way and i think the ones that i've seen successful are the ones that that have figured out a way to balance it out either through co-investments or through you know creating the right governance structures or by being able to sort of, you know, pick areas where both parties can bring equal strength into the collaboration, that's when they really shine. It's not lost on me that we're nearly the end of our conversation today about digital innovation. We really haven't talked about specific technologies outside of you mentioning like generative AI, for example, which everyone talks about. But what do you see as like some of the most significant technological advancements over the last couple of years that have a potential to truly innovate how healthcare is delivered here in the United States. I'll answer that question slightly differently, and and you know what I want to what I want to answer for is not just technology, but also our ability to expect technology and our ability to accept technology. Right? If you think about the consumer today compared to the consumer even like maybe five to ten years ago, right? We are far more capable of and expecting experiences that our healthcare system aren't providing to us, right? So we, we book restaurants online, we bank online, we we are we spend most of our day on social media. Um, I called my my saloon today for our haircut and you know right away I got a text message saying, would you prefer to text? And I was like, oh my God, thank God I don't have to talk to anyone. <laughs> and and can you imagine having to wait up for someone like me to wait 45 minutes on a phone just to reschedule a doctor's appointment? So I think accepting and expecting technology as a consumer has changed so much, right? That I think that is where healthcare is going. So when we get into a healthcare system and, and we're just working on the fact that maybe our, maybe our patients can probably text us 
to maybe reschedule an appointment and be really careful around those edges and we think, oh my God, this is going to be like groundbreaking. It's not. It's groundbreaking for the system and it's groundbreaking for a healthcare system to provide that experience, And but it's not from a technology standpoint. So to, to answer your question is like, what's groundbreaking technology? I mean, honestly, Chris, like if all of us just got texting, I'd be so happy. Having said that, I think um, Gen AI is obviously up, up there as something that, that's coming up a lot. Digital therapeutics, you know, as much as shit's gone on the face for digital therapeutics after what happened to Pair, and I see a lot of the industry kind of like shying away from that term even now, I don't think that that's actually necessarily something we can write off completely. I think it's still here to, say, here, here to stay. But, you know, the ability to use digital tools as a therapeutic instead of having to use molecules, I mean, just think about how groundbreaking that can be. And I think we're seeing some pretty good signal overall in, in technologies actually being able to have documented evidence of efficacy that seemed to work really well. So I think, you know, that is something that's really exciting. I think the the acceptability of sensors in general and how they've now become woven into our lives is really interesting because we can now sense so much about what's going on with you. When I just started digital health about, you know, again, 18 years ago now, um, I had this analogy I used to use about uh, having a speedometer, right, on a, on a on a patient, right? Instead of having, you know, we can have like a red, yellow, green on them. We know what speed they're going at. We know what's going on with them. Maybe maybe there's an oil change sign that lights up, right? There's ways in which we can sense so much about people that we can start to get a little bit proactive about it. 18 years ago, it was a pipe dream. Today, I can put it together, you know, if I knew a little bit of Python. And so that's exciting, right? So we can use some of these signals that we're collecting from people and the sensor technology just keeps getting better. Um, you know, and then every six months now there's something new that is sensing something that we've never sensed before. So now as a healthcare system, as a, and as innovators, the sensing technology is less interesting from a, you know, area of like complete white space. But what you do with the data and how you use the data to be able to do something meaningful clinically is where the exciting parts are. So less about, you know, what's that crazy technology, more about how are we using the data we're getting from individuals how are we analyzing the data to create meaningful signals and then how are we using those meaningful signals in order to deliver clinical care at a, at a higher level of experience i like that answer and you know it inevitably is when we talk about digital innovation or digital anything it's really less about the technology per se because the technology exists it's just how do we utilize it in a way that can be meaningful to good outcomes, to good strategic outcomes, business outcomes, clinical outcomes, whatever it may be. And how do we uh, change the culture of those people that are looking to adopt these so they can be more successful with that adoption, I think. So Kamal, this has been a great conversation. Got to have you back on again to talk a little bit deeper. Each one of these questions could have gone, we could have gone so deep into, and it could have been a whole interview in, in and of itself. But let me end with this. If people want to know a little bit more about you and Decimal Health, what's the best way for them to, to seek out you and find you? I am on LinkedIn, pretty easy. Uh, also, obviously, um, can email me um, uh, on our website, decimal.health. But I am also actually going to be at a few events coming up. So I'm going to be at DTX East uh, in Boston. That starts tomorrow for three days. I'm going to be at uh, HLTH uh, later in, in early October for about three or four days in Vegas. Uh, and then I will also be at JP Morgan in January. 
Well, that's great. You know what I'll do is in our show notes, people, I'll, I'll put in links to everything, not only your LinkedIn page, but your website, but also to these different conferences. So if they can run into you there, I think this is, uh, this is awesome. Uh, obviously, this conversation has been really informative, very really insightful. And uh, as I said, got to have you back on again to talk a little bit deeper about each and every one of these individual topics when we can go into them deeper. Thanks for your time to. today. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Special thanks to Kamal for coming on the show. Uh, this is a topic that I uh, certainly enjoy visiting about and hearing from others and appreciate his time and, and insights as we make it through another week. Great uh, topic for uh, the 350th edition of Touchpoint. And so, again, appreciate everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, we certainly uh, love the support. Reach out to us. LinkedIn is probably the best way to track us down, but there's people we should talk to or topics we should cover. Uh, or you just want to say hi. Love to hear it. So we love we love love. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, the TPS report, which we mentioned earlier, do go sign up for that over at touchpoint.health. Uh, get you that email. Also, there will be some links in there about upcoming conferences and and things like that. But before we close out the show, uh, maybe a couple of recommendations. Uh, what do you got today? Reed, I'm going to recommend something that uh, for a long time I was opposed to using, and now I suddenly realize the value of it. Like you, probably, I always try to keep myself up to date on the most recent phones that we have, you know, the iPhone, although I haven't purchased the new one yet. You know, for a while there, I was not putting anything on that iPhone. I was just carrying it around just the way it is. I kind of kept it in my pocket. I liked to just be able to slide in and out of my bag. It was really easy to do. Well, now that I have a little guy around the house, he tends to gravitate towards that. He just wants to hold it up. I know he knows it's a way that he could talk to, you know, some of his relatives through video chat and... But he also just finds it to be a fun little toy that he puts into his mouth. So I decided to uh, do some research on the best baby-proof case that's out there. And it actually happens to be a pretty good case because since I got it, I've dropped the phone a couple of times and the phone is intact. And that's uh, a Fire Nova case, Promax case. It's a silicon upgraded phone case. It comes with screen protectors, also very good. Again, I used to be opposed to screen protectors, but now I'm all about them. There's a soft anti-scratch microfiber lining inside. Uh, you can get these for real cheap, obviously. you know, Don't go into the Apple store to get it. If you have an iPhone, go find it on like Amazon or wherever you like to purchase online. I got mine for like 12 bucks. You know, it was pretty easy to do. But this thing is like impervious now. By the way, it also makes it very easy for him to pick it up because it has a nice grip and a nice texture on it. The only downside I have about this iPhone case, Reed, is when I put it into my jean pocket, sometimes when I pull it out, the outside silicon grabs the inside of my jean pocket lining, and it pulls the pocket out as I'm pulling the phone out. So that's the only downside. But overall, I highly recommend go get a case, put a case around your phone if you don't do it now, if you thought it was too cool, because you never know when that baby comes up and will want to stick your phone in its mouth. And that's my recommendation. Well, there you go. And, then, and an honest recommendation. So, um, there yeah. you go. <laughs> All right. I am going to recommend a game, an iOS game called Geometry Dash. Oh, that's right. Geometry Dash. It's also on the Google Play Store, so it seems. So, I guess it's not just an iOS device. There is a paid version. I actually have Geometry Dash Lite. It's a fun little video game where you can, 
you know, I don't want to make this more than it is, but it's kind of like Super Mario Brothers, sort of. But you just like go and you like you jump over things. Anyway, it's a fun fun time to um, kill a few minutes here and there. So if you're looking for a new game that is good for uh, killing a few minutes and wasting time, but it's well done. It's fun. Now I will say it is pretty hard. It's not the easiest thing in the world. I'm trying to think. I want to think there is, uh, yeah, 21 levels, it says. I just Googled here. So check it out. I'd be curious how far you can make it in this game. Yeah, well, it combines two things that I really like. Fun, quick games and math. I'm going to I'm gonna go try it. I'll get back to you, Reed, and see how well it works. Yeah, that's a good recommendation. I'm going to see how far. I'll let you know what level I get to. Yeah, so you're just, you know, you're controlling the movement of this little icon, and you're just, you're jumping over... Uh, items in front of you so it gets it gets pretty difficult uh pretty pretty fast so you kind of play it in landscape mode yeah go check it out and be curious so there you go there you go great recommendation all right guys thanks for joining us thanks for tuning in for another episode for chris boyer i'm reed smith and we'll see you next week this has been a touchpoint media production to learn more about this show and others like it please visit us online at touchpoint.health